Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, global development communities, and anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The crisis in Syria is at a crossroads. This is not because the underlying dynamics of the conflict have changed in any big way. As it has been for the last couple of years, the Syrian government has regained control over most of the country, with the exception of parts of northern Syria near the border with Turkey. This includes much of the Idlib province, where a stalemate in the fighting endures. Rather, what makes this such a perilous moment in the 10-year history of the Syria conflict is that millions of people trapped in Idlib may soon face a near-complete cutoff of the humanitarian aid upon which they rely. Since 2014, the United Nations has mounted a massive humanitarian relief operation to serve people trapped in rebel-held areas. The United Nations and international aid agencies have been able to deliver aid directly to besieged populations in northern Syria via Turkey. This is because in 2014, the UN Security Council authorized the cross-border delivery of aid even if the government of Syria objects. Normally, humanitarian relief operations require, for both practical and legal reasons, the consent of the government on whose territory aid is being delivered. But back in 2014, with millions of people displaced in areas outside government control, and with the government refusing to let aid agencies operate in those areas, the Security Council made legal the ostensible violation of Syrian territorial sovereignty in order to enable the cross-border delivery of aid. That was 2014, and that system worked for a while. But over the past 18 months, the government of Russia has begun to object to this cross-border aid delivery to the point where Moscow has used its veto power at the Security Council to force all but one remaining border crossing to close to international aid. And today we are facing a potential turning point in the crisis in Syria because Russia has signaled that it intends to veto a Security Council resolution allowing that very last remaining border crossing to stay open. Unless an agreement is reached, that border crossing will close to international aid on July 10th cutting off the last lifeline for millions of people in Idlib. A humanitarian calamity is certain to follow. On the line with me to discuss this situation is Vanessa Jackson, UN representative and head of office for CARE International at the United Nations. CARE is a large international humanitarian organization that currently serves populations in Idlib through this last remaining border crossing. In our conversation, she conveys really viscerally how 
vital this last remaining border crossing is to besieged populations in Idlib. We also discuss where this debate over keeping this border crossing open fits into the broader trajectory of the Syria crisis. Now, some of you may be listening to this conversation before this decision is made at the Security Council, some after. Still, this conversation does a good job, I think, of explaining the history and context of the humanitarian crisis in Syria. As always, if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, please do send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Vanessa Jackson of Care International. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The main point to make about the current state of play is that even though we've seen the conflict in Syria going on for over a decade now, and it's maybe not so much in the headlines, the needs on the ground of um, ordinary Syrians are actually continuing to increase. So we're actually seeing the highest levels of humanitarian need in the country in the last 10 years. So even though there's a a fragile ceasefire and there is still conflict in pockets of northern Syria, particularly around Idlib and Aleppo, it's really the, the toll of 10 years of conflict, of destruction of infrastructure, of disruption to people's livelihoods, particularly the the farming, like Syria was a a breadbasket for the region. We're seeing all of those elements that go into a country being relatively self-sufficient really disappearing. And on top of that, we now have the impacts of, of COVID, which um, you know, it's it's the same inside Syria as it is elsewhere, with the impact of lockdowns, the impact of school closures, particularly on women. We've seen more women heading up households in Syria than ever before. It's about 22%. So it's this confluence of events. And the other factor that is looming, I don't think it's really in full effect yet, is that there's a very severe drought in the northeast of Syria, which is regarded as the breadbasket of the country. And, and that is really threatening to tip the food insecurity into an even higher um, level of um, food insecurity. So I think when you put all of those things together, it's no surprise that international humanitarians have been imploring the Security Council to not only continue with the cross-border operation, but to scale it up, to make sure that the scale of the operation is actually meeting the needs on the ground and that it will 
enable the international community to deliver fair and free access to COVID vaccines for everyone in Syria. Perhaps just to remind listeners how we got to this point, I think it's fair to say that one of the tactics the regime used in prosecuting the war was to besiege cities and towns that rebel forces held, impose a humanitarian disaster upon those civilian populations in rebel-held areas. Then eventually there'd be some sort of local ceasefire brokered in which uh, the regime would allow buses to come collect the besieged population and transport them out. Uh, And oftentimes they would end up in Idlib, uh, which now has a population, I think two thirds of which are, does have been people displaced from elsewhere in the country. Is that fair? Yeah, that is a fair assessment. Um, Most of the people that are in this northern part of Syria are people who have been displaced because of the conflict, because of the fact they uh, align or are a part of a family that um, doesn't want to be in government-held areas or that is where they were anyway. So a lot of the people have been displaced eight, nine, ten times now um, and we're, we're seeing the displacement continuing. Uh, it's, it's quite surprising or bordering on shocking to read that in the northeast there are actually wait lists for people to get into um, internally displaced people camps. And these camps are shocking. Um, The the conditions that people have to live in are are really quite deplorable. And uh, the fact that people are leaving wherever they were and seeking um, assistance in these camps is, is a sign of just how desperate people are that they either can't afford their rent anymore or they think they're going to be able to um, make some kind of a living in the camps. Um, there's lots of reasons why, why people are, are leaving, but that that displacement continues to be a factor. And we're seeing um, the, the needs in not only in the camps but in the cities themselves, um, just as I said, because people's coping mechanisms have you know really almost been exhausted. We're seeing um, really alarming figures around child labour, early and forced child marriage figures for girls because it's one less mouth for a family to feed. Um, people eating less, um, skipping meals, particularly mothers. So you know that that's the kind of um, reality on the ground for people who've. Um, found themselves in these last remaining pockets that are not controlled by the government of Syria. So it was in the midst of this unfolding humanitarian calamity in Syria in 2014 that the Security Council did something that was somewhat unprecedented at the time. It voted to allow the cross-border delivery of humanitarian aid from countries outside Syria into Syria without the consent of the Syrian government. And this aid would go directly to rebel-held areas. And at least to me, following the diplomacy at that time, you know, this seemed to be almost like a high watermark for international diplomacy on Syria, but it has 
obviously deteriorated significantly since then. Could you maybe just take us back to that moment in 2014 and explain you know, why is it that the Security Council did take this unprecedented step to enable the international community, aid organizations like yourself, uh, like CARE, to you know, ostensibly violate the sovereignty of a UN member state in order to deliver aid? Yeah, no, there was a lot of um, contention at the time, and there was some really um, impressive advocacy done um, to mobilize some of the, the preeminent jurists of the day to write to the Security Council and to lay out the case as to why they had both a legal and a moral obligation and they didn't even need a Security Council resolution to do this um, in the opinion of some legal experts. Um, But understandably, um, the UN uh, being the the kind of organisation it is, it felt it needed the approval and the endorsement of the Security Council to operate across the border into Syria without the consent of the Syrian government. And that was a unanimous vote in 2014 that the Council agreed. Um, These were such extenuating circumstances and so many Syrian lives were in the balance that all 15 Council members agreed. And Obviously, the the course of the conflict changed quite dramatically after that time where you saw uh, Russia really escalate its involvement in the conflict to really um, be very, uh, provide very direct support to the Syrian government to fight um, what it regarded as terrorist groups. Um, and, and so I think that's where we saw... Uh, the, the really serious escalation of the conflict and the extremely severe toll that it began to take on civilians and, and the massive displacement that that caused. And, you know, over those intervening years, we've seen the Syrian government reclaim more and more and more territory um, and the opposition groups um, really squeezed into um, you know, this northern zone of, of Syria right up across the, the Turkish border and, and neighbouring the Iraqi border. So the the thing that I think is really quite um, remarkable about this is that the even though the, the cross-border assistance has become a real political football in the Security Council, which is extremely unfortunate because it at the end of the day, it is purely and only a humanitarian issue. Um, the scale of the, the needs continue to rise and it, it remains a really enormous humanitarian operation with only a really um, small amount of, in comparison, a small amount of humanitarian assistance being moved from Damascus up into parts of northern Syria, so, so what we call the cross-line operation of, of aid that is being provided by the Syrian government. It's the two scales of these operations are, um, you know, poles apart. So last time we spoke, about a year ago, we were facing a very similar situation in which uh, the Security Council was or appeared to be divided as to whether or not to reauthorize some of these cross-border operations. Can you just remind us what was decided one year ago? 
Yeah, I think it, it's probably helpful to go back 18 months ago, if that's all right. Um, Take me that, 18 months ago. That's okay. fine. Yeah. So that was um, when we really saw a sea change in the nature of the um, cross-border setup. And it was at that time, sort of December going, December of 2019 going into January of 2020, where we saw Russia, um, with support from China, really take a strong stand um, about the changes it wanted to see to the humanitarian cross-border operation. At that point, we had four crossings. And we, most people um, who were watching the council expected at least one of those crossings would be closed because it was, it was in the south of the country and it really wasn't um, crucial to meeting the needs of people. The, the crossings in the north, and there were three of them, were really the ones that people wanted to, to fight to keep open. But it was at this time where Russia and China exercised their veto power and said, no, we're not going with the text that has been presented in the council. We really want a major rethink. And that's where we saw one of those crossings in the north um, at the Iraqi border, the Al-Yarubiya crossing, um, was removed from the resolution. So we had we went from four crossings down to two. And then the council, at, at, and at that time, um, Russia was insistent that it would only allow the resolution to be renewed for six months instead of the normal 12 months. So we went through that very tumultuous time over the, the, the um, holiday season um, and then six months later in the summer of 2020, we all had to come back and renew that resolution and Russia again made it very clear that it still believed that there was too much uh, cross-border operation happening, that that threatened or was, was just not consistent with the sovereignty of the government of Syria, and so it, it made this very strong case that it would close the third crossing, the, the crossing near the um, governor of Aleppo, called, and the crossing there is called um, Bab al-Salam. So within the space of that, you know, six-month period where we had four crossings, we were suddenly down to one crossing, Bab al-Hawa, in July of 2020, and that's the one crossing that remains. And we are still in a context where Russia is adamant that the cross-border operation um, should be wound up. It is not appropriate that um, the government of Syria has this affront on its borders um, and that Russia is, is really strongly making the case that the Syrian government um, can and will meet the humanitarian needs itself. And that's really where the argument arises in the council, where there really are two quite divided camps. And we're seeing um, Russia and China again um, arguing the perspective of the Syrian government. But we see um, the, the P3, the UK, France, and the US um, quite aligned with most of the members of the um, elected membership, the other 10. Um, but there are there's a spectrum of views, obviously, amongst those 10 elected members, and that's where we have the uncertainty about what the outcome might be in the council. Will Russia um, 
be able to assert its position and close this final remaining crossing that is a lifeline to, to over 3 million Syrians? Um, or will the alternative be that we might actually see an increase in the cross-border assistance? And, and that's the, the text that has now been presented to the council that it actually seeks to not only renew the one crossing we have in the northwest, but to reopen the Al Yarubia crossing in the northeast. And the argument for that is both that the needs are growing um, very rapidly in the northeast, and coupled with the need for better access to deliver COVID vaccines, there's a really compelling humanitarian argument to allow that additional crossing to mm. be opened. And there's also a, um, a really united um, position amongst the humanitarian NGOs that we actually want to see the third crossing reopened, the crossing above Al-Salam, um, for exactly the same reasons. Needs are increasing and we really have to deal with, with COVID and, and to be effective and to be um, swift in um, preventing the spread of COVID, uh, we need that improved access on all fronts. I think it's probably fair to say that thus far, at least, Russia has not been swayed by uh, humanitarian arguments, but rather has seen this as an opportunity to support its ally, Syria. Syria sees this cross-border aid as an affront to its sovereignty. Russia would like to see the aid you know, uh, routed through Damascus as a way to you know, assert the power dominance of the, the Syrian government over territory, ostensibly that's, that's part of, of Syria. But as you said earlier, you know, the Syrian government has not been terribly um, generous with the aid that flows through Damascus to make it to areas under rebel control. And, and I think therein lies uh, the, the challenge. Um, but you're saying now that the counter proposal on the table is to increase the number of crossings, whereas Russia for the last several years has sought to decrease the number of crossings. How do you see this playing out in the coming days? That is the $64 million question. Um, Russia has not received instructions from Moscow, so nobody has any confidence about what its ultimate position will be. And we know that the, the president for the council in July, which is um, the French, have um, tentatively marked the 8th of July as the day for the vote to be taken on this renewal resolution. So it's, you know, it's basically this period we have of about a week for the, the negotiations to proceed. Um, I think the, the, the co-pens, which are Norway and Ireland, are meeting with all council members for the first time on the on the draft text tomorrow. And just to interrupt you, co-pens is UN speak for co-pen holders. Uh, and this is the term of art in Security Council diplomacy of who gets to who is writing the draft of, of the resolution. Yes, and, and who also has to lead the negotiations. So mm -hmm. if if they're feeling the, the pressure, it will be Ireland and Norway um, having to have really tough negotiations with Russia. Mm. And, and unfortunately, um, 
given the, the comments that we've heard from the Russian permanent representative in the council this week, uh, it is going to be a tough negotiation. No one is taking it for granted that we'll even have a renewal of the Babalhawa crossing in the northwest. Mm. Even though we've had really strong and clear um, and consistent cases made by the Secretary General himself, by the head of the UN um, uh, Emergency Relief Coordinator, backed up by the principles of six other UN agencies and the entire international humanitarian community. So it, it really, uh, it, it was quite striking in the council last week. Uh, it was the Estonian president of the council at the time who, who said very directly to the Russian permanent representative, we can't all be wrong. We can't all be seeing a reality that is different on the ground. Why is Russia so opposed to meeting humanitarian needs? So, you know, that's the tenor of the conversation in the council at the moment. So you said something earlier that uh, piqued my curiosity and, and interest. You said that at the time in 2014, there were some discussions, some jurists suggested that you wouldn't even need a Security Council resolution to do this kind of cross-border aid delivery, but that out of political necessity, UN humanitarian agencies like the World Food Program, UNICEF, uh, World Health Organization, they require this kind of, of approval. You work for a private agency. Could you foresee a situation in which CARE or your colleagues uh, and other organizations continue cross-border delivery of aid uh, despite the fact that there is no formal security authorization to do so? Yes, we. I think most of us, if not all of us, um, do foresee that we will continue to deliver what assistance we can across the border. And that's really because as humanitarian organisations, we operate under international humanitarian law and, and the principles of, you know, neutrality, impartiality um, and independence. And we are driven by our commitment to meet the needs of the most, uh, the people who are most in need. Mm. Well, and that need is is not going to stop just because the UN doesn't have authorization to operate, and we actually see those needs um, will probably skyrocket and will be beyond be beyond our capability to to meet them. And and that is what is keeping colleagues in the region up at night. They they are having sleepless nights because it is just inconceivable to imagine that just if you look at the World Food Program, food baskets that go into northwest Syria, it feeds 1.4 million people a month. And those food baskets will stop on the 11th of July if the council votes against renewal. And we estimate that collectively the international humanitarian community can only increase our delivery of those food baskets for about 300,000 people. So that leaves over a million people that from one day to the next will not have food that they can access. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see the domino effect of this with a, you know millions of people suddenly not getting clean water, not getting food baskets, not getting assistance with shelter, 
approaching winter in Syria with no assistance, you know, it it becomes um, a, a really terrifying prospect and particularly for the, the Syrians themselves. Well, can, can I ask, logistically, how, how does that work? How would CARE just, you know, start driving caravans over the border, continue to use the uh, crossing on its own? There, there are a number of commercial crossings which are not used by the UN but are used by international humanitarian organisations. So we can continue with those kinds of operations but they pale into insignificance in terms of the scale of what we can do versus what a coordinated United Nations response can do. There, There simply is no comparison. And it's not just that the UN can do things on a massive scale. It can organize really cost-effective global procurement. It can run the warehouses. It has the fleet of vehicles. It um, gets the um, not only the the physical aid, but the delivery of services like education, for example. The UN is doing all of those things and coordinating everybody on the ground. So UN agencies, international organisations, and most importantly, the local Syrian organisations who are the ones on the ground making sure that the um, assistance reaches the people most in need. And so if you take the UN out of that equation, it's, it's a skeleton that's left. And it's a skeleton that we cannot scale up. Um, even if donors came to the party and just gave us all the money that they give to the UN, we can't absorb that. We don't have the systems in place. We don't have the staff in place. And we're, we're just not equipped to fill the UN shoes. I mean, could you foresee a situation in which this, this resolution is vetoed by Russia yet say the World Food Program continues to operate through those commercial crossings that you referenced. I mean, that seems out of step with what I know about how the UN works. Mm. Yeah, I don't think that is a likely scenario yeah. um, because you know, back in 2014 when the UN was confronted with this dilemma, do we um, challenge the... Um, idea of Syrian sovereignty or do we acknowledge our responsibilities and our moral imperative under international humanitarian law to to save lives? That was a really, really difficult dilemma for the UN to weigh up and it relied on international law and it was the Office of Legal Affairs in the UN that, that made the judgment that said this is a grey area in the law. Some people will argue this way, some people will argue the opposite. So the UN took a conservative approach, but in our view it took the right approach. It put the, the lives of Syrian people um, and gave them greater weight on the scale versus protecting the sovereignty of a state that, that was engaged in the civil war. So for us that equation hasn't changed. But I think without having the support and the green light from the Security Council, it would be uh, really difficult for a UN agency to break ranks and decide that it is going to continue with some form of, of cross-border assistance. That, that's just not how the UN operates. It's, you know, it's one system 
And if there's a directive from the Office of Legal Affairs via the Secretary General, that is the, you know, those are the rules of the road for everyone in the UN family. And the international humanitarian community is, is slightly separate from that. You know, as you said, we, an organisation like CARE, we are our own legal entity. We can take up, um, we, or we can weigh the risks ourselves and we might come to a different scenario because we, you know, we have a different mandate. We are there first and foremost to provide humanitarian assistance to people in need. It's not about which bit of territory you're in. It's not about what religion you are or who you're affiliated in the conflict. It's do you have a need? How can we get aid to you to meet those needs? That, that's our equation. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Vanessa. And yeah, I am recording this intro just now 10 days before this decision is due at the Security Council. So I'll obviously be following this very closely as I will promise to continue to return to the crisis and conflict in Syria, even as other media outlets tend to now ignore or overlook this 10-year conflict. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.